Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. I don't know. Kind of, I was watching that intro there, and I'm a little bit skeptical that it starts with snow, which I was just saying to my producer, Sean, is like the very worst attribute of this country. So I don't know. You can let me know what you think. I, I believe that it might be a little bit weird to articulate a an intro to a show on True North that had like palm trees or something. I mean, maybe those uh, authentic Edmonton palm trees, but I don't know. I, I Snow, I just want to get rid... I mean, then again, I should say, if we talk about imagery here, the snow melts away at the beginning. So it, it melts away and uh, there we have it. Uh, we also didn't give you the Andrew Lawton show intro. I'm not going to sing it myself. I'm also not going to try to do our uh, voiceover guys deep booming. You're listening. I can't even do it that. I'm not uh, that much of a bass. But I do welcome you very much. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show, the Andrew Lawton show here on True North. We are back in the studio this time. We were uh, last time in Ottawa on stage at the Canada Strong and Free Networking Conference. Had great feedback from people in the room in Ottawa. And those of you tuning in from afar to that show, which had a couple of young up-and-comers, Noah Jarvis and Liam Dunn, as well as a couple of, uh, also not old people, but uh, people that are more established in their careers, Garnet Jenis and Catherine Marshall, talking about political discrimination. So hopefully that gave you a, a bit of wisdom and perhaps some uh, strategic advice that you can take as you go through your lives in what can oftentimes feel like an ideological minority. But all of that aside, over the next few shows, we're going to have more content from the Canada Strong and Free Conference. Uh, today, we'll have an interview with Jamil Giovanni. Tomorrow, I believe, we will have my interview with former Conservative leader Candace Bergen and lots more coming up. But I actually want to begin today's show by discussing my interview with Premier Danielle Smith, the Premier of Alberta, a woman that I have always had to preface my interactions with her on air with the caveat that I used to work with her and I actually co-founded a philanthropic endeavor with her not that long ago which she regretfully had to abandon when uh, it became time to seek the leadership of the UCP and ultimately the premiership of Alberta. So I go way back with Danielle Smith and I, I decided I can't feign objectivity with her because I do consider her a friend, but I also at the same time realize that I am a journalist. She is the premier of Alberta. She is someone that uh, like anyone else in power needs to be held to account and needs to be asked questions about things that uh, she might not normally speak about. So we sat down and we talked about one issue that she has been very prolific in talking about and that that's been Justin Trudeau's just transition. And I want to share a clip of this with her because oftentimes the liberals have tried to reframe the climate debate and energy policy as being the evil knuckle-dragging Neanderthal troglodyte anti-science louts on one hand, with the progressive greeniacs uh, being the liberals on the other hand. And we forget that, like anything else, things cannot be distilled so easily into extremes. And a lot of the people that say no to carbon taxes, people like Danielle Smith, people like Pierre Polyev, are not actually rejecting some of the core premises underlying these things. They're saying, no, 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 you want to go net zero, fine, 
we believe that our way can do it better and it can be enterprise that leads this. Now, I, I believe we can debate that position. And in fact, I actually think just as a matter of practicality, accepting the liberals' premises is never going to work. And I, I feel that the net zero thing is actually not a worthwhile goal because if you talk to a lot of the environmental activists, they don't want net zero. They want absolute zero. They don't like this idea of doing what Danielle Smith is talking about, of carbon capture, of carbon sequestration. They want emissions to plummet to zero. They want to get rid of air travel. They want to get rid of gas stoves. They want to get rid of wood fireplaces. They want to get rid of anything that is not just living in a tiny little shoebox apartment, taking public transit places, and eating your cricket soup for supper. But nevertheless, it is a discussion that we need to have, and one that should not be off limits like the liberals proclaim. So this was just a little bit of my interview from the weekend with Premier Danielle Smith about the just transition and net zero. A lot of this is done under the auspices of, of the government's objective of going to net zero on emissions, they say. And I, you're an interesting voice on this because you don't actually reject the premise behind net zero, do you? I, I think carbon neutrality is possible for a country like Canada. When you look at our emissions in a global context, we're only 1.4% of global emissions. And there are mechanisms in the Paris Accord for us to use our technology to reduce emissions around the world and get credit for it. So why wouldn't we do that? Why wouldn't we export more LNG so we can reduce coal and wood and dung as fuels? Why wouldn't we uh, look at what is happening in Ontario, who's a world leader in developing nuclear technology, small modular nuclear? That seems to make sense. Uh, we also have already been a world leader on developing carbon capture utilization and storage, on hydrogen, on geothermal. These are the kind of things that make sense in the Alberta context. And, and so when I, when I look out 30 years into the future, I have great confidence in our innovators and our, uh, those who are in the technology sector that they're going to find answers to these problems. They just need a, a large enough runway because we're already seeing promising de technologies develop. The thing that is so important is that I do not see any transition as a transition away from oil and natural gas. It's a transition away from emissions. We're still going to be using oil. We're still going to be using natural gas. We'll just be using them in a different way. And that's the, the kind of conversation that we need to have as a country. So I think the interesting dynamic here, and we've talked about this in other contexts in the past, is that the liberals don't just want their stated environmental objective. They want it on their terms. They aren't interested in solutions from the oil and gas sector on ways that uh, we could do this thing in a clean and green way to use their own premises. So I, I think that is right there why the premises shouldn't be accepted and why politicians of any stripe should probably be a little bit wary of going down the road of saying, yes, we support net zero, but have a better way to it. Because ultimately, Aaron O'Toole tried to do this whole, oh, we're conservatives and we support a price on carbon thing. And it didn't work because people who care about that issue, people who vote based on that issue are not voting conservative. So that was one of the points of contrast I'd bring up there. But I want to say this idea of a just transition, I don't even like calling it that, but it's what the government claims is a just transition ripped right from the Paris Climate Accord language. It's predicated on the idea that oil and gas jobs are yesterday's jobs, that the future needs to be green jobs, and uh, we shouldn't be talking about protecting oil. We should be talking about finding ways to get all these people making electric batteries and electric cars and stuff like that. So uh, it is unjust, and it is uh, not particularly environmentally sound, scientifically sound, or economically sound, but it's something we're going to be focusing on a fair bit. So I want to just put out a, a bit of a call here. If this is something that affects you, maybe you're in the oil and gas sector yourself, 
uh, do reach out to us and we will most certainly talk about that when we embark on this series in the little next little while. And I should just say, before we move on to the next part of my interview with Danielle Smith, I should tell you... Right now, the federal budget is being announced. I am doing you a great service by watching me. You don't have to watch Christian Freeland, and I believe I should get some uh, credit and praise for that. We are going to talk about the budget, but we're going to do that on tomorrow's show when we've had time to actually read it and find the stuff that's been buried in there that the liberals don't want you to see. Because right now, the presentation is all about, oh, everything's great. We're protecting you against inflation. The economy is going to be in good hands, and uh, don't worry about the deficit. It's all just, you know, minor, minute, it's uh, nothing. Uh, but tomorrow on the show, we'll be able to get a little bit more into the stuff that's in there that's not on the front page, that's not in the executive summary. So I don't want you to think we're ignoring the deficit. I just didn't feel like watching Christopher Freeland speak tonight and then have to do a whole show after uh, because I would have wanted to take a nap instead. So uh, let's talk about the other story we did have on this show. I believe it was two weeks ago, maybe last week, about the city of Calgary banning protesters that they don't like. And this was something... Uh, Christine Van Gynde joined the show to talk about the wonderful constitutional lawyer in Canada because the city of Calgary has said, we don't like people that protest drag story hour at libraries. That was basically it. So they passed this little bylaw saying, well, specific protests that are on a racial, gender, sexual identity, gender identity, stuff like that, you can't do outside public spaces. So it was the anti-drag story time protest ban. It has been derided as unconstitutional, although it takes a little bit of time for there to be a challenge afoot. I hadn't actually heard Premier Danielle Smith weigh in on this, so I asked her about it on Thursday. Calgary uh, just last week passed a bylaw restricting certain forms of, of protest, and they did this in ways that have been largely derided as unconstitutional by, by some groups. And as premier, obviously, I know you want municipalities to have their own runway for their own policy, but I know you've always been an advocate for free speech. What do you make of this decision? I, I don't like anyone disrupting an event. I mean, I, I, we feel very strongly about that in, um, in religious ceremonies, that a pastor cannot be interrupted during a religious ceremony. It's a criminal code offense to do that. So I think that we should allow for that same kind of approach that if an event is taking place, let's find a way to protest peacefully, non-disruptively, and, and in a way that's within the bounds of the law. The, um, when it comes to the event in particular that you're, that you're referring to, um, it's an opt-in event on behalf of parents making the choice of what's age appropriate for their children, and I believe also in parental choice. So we've got to balance these things, that making sure that we have age-appropriate content for kids, making sure that there's parental choice and opt-in, as well as preserving the right of peaceful protest. And I'm watching with interest to see if they get the right balance in, in, in Calgary, because I, I think it's been a bit of a fractious debate. And so we, I don't know if they've come to a resolution on that yet, but I think all three of those things are very important. But the bylaw is not focused just on disruption. It also targets protests outside. So do you think it actually strikes that balance? I, you know, I, I have to wait and see what they come up with and how it's going to be litigated. I already understand that the Canadian Constitution Foundation is already challenging that legislation. So we'll see how, how that ends up going. We do try to take a hands-off approach with our municipalities uh, to allow them to have the latitude to do what they think makes sense and uh, for their residents. And if they get it wrong, the courts are going to decide that. 
That was Alberta Premier Danielle Smith and yours truly sitting down in Ottawa for the uh, interview after the Canada Strong and Free Net. Well, during the conference, but after her remarks, it was quite interesting. So uh, we had True North, this little booth and makeshift studio set up like right outside the conference doors. So what happened was at the end of it, Danielle Smith had a very, very tight timeline because she had to be on, I think it was CTV or something right after me. And that was going to be in one room. And she has like, you know, huge fans at the Canada Strong and Free Conference. So they had to get her from the stage through the crowd, out the door, into that chair. And I'm thinking like, you know, I just want to like body check everyone out of the way. I was like, get your photo later, get your photo later. I don't want CTV to eat up my time. But uh, they did very well. Uh, She had the two bodyguards with her that are, you know, part of the provincial security for the premier. And uh, they got her through. We did the interview. We had all these paparazzi around. It was great. All of these journalists taking pictures. And uh, they didn't get published anywhere because they probably didn't want to like promote the True North branding in the background there. Uh, But if you want to watch the full interview, it is available over at tnc.news. And I would encourage you to check that out. One of the interesting dynamics is that with an election coming up in Alberta in basically two months, it'll uh, fast, fast approaching. Uh, there was this idea of whether Rachel Notley is really the opponent to Danielle Smith or whether Justin Trudeau is. And uh, Danielle's uh, position on that, Premier Smith's position on that was it's a, a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. And we'll certainly have a coverage of that election when it uh, comes up, which will be very, very quickly, I assure you. Uh, one of the things that I, I want to talk about before getting into Roxham Road, which is a, a big, big topic here that we have to address with uh, Justin Trudeau's revised agreement with Joe Biden is just what was happening in Ottawa because Stephen Harper made a bunch of comments on populism and the state of the conservative movement. This was really the theme of this summit in Ottawa. So I sat down with Jamil Giovanni, president of the Canada Strong and Free Network, to get his thoughts on what this is all about. Sitting down with Canada Strong and Free Network president Jamil Giovanni. Jamil, we spoke when you were taking over the reins of Uh, the organization and obviously you had the conservative leadership race going on last year so uh, that adds a bit of energy but even now uh, this is like one of the record-setting years i've been told for attendance you had stephen harper speaking what's the big point of this what's the theme of this this year well there are two things happening right now one is that you know the middle class in this country is hurting not enough people are talking about solutions to that we believe the conservative movement has solutions and we want to bring those to the front right we want to bring those into spotlight because one of the things we're trying to do here The other thing is we're trying to connect generations. You mentioned Prime Minister Harper speaking, Preston Manning. We want them to share what they learned from their time in politics with young people, with the millennials and the Gen Zers who are going to be the future leaders of the conservative movement. And we're bringing those generations together this week. If you look at past conservative prime ministers in this country, people like Joe Clark and Brian Mulroney, I mean, it's not a large list of conservative prime ministers, but the ones that are still around today, they don't have the relevance to modern conservatives that Stephen Harper does. And I, I'm curious if you think that's just because Stephen Harper was more recent or if it's because Stephen Harper was just a different breed of conservative leader that still resonates today. I do think something very unique about Mr. Harper, which is that he is a principled man. And I think conservatives that might not always agree with his principles respect the fact that he tried to apply conservative thinking to solve problems. That is a timeless effort. Every conservative, every conservative politician, member of the conservative movement has the same task. So when you see someone you respect and taking that responsibility on, it's something that I think we're naturally drawn to. And that is what I hope to see from whoever the next uh, conservative prime minister might be, is the same commitment to solving problems as a conservative, applying our principles, being relevant, 
to both the movement and also to the rest of the country. You've got all the heavy hitters of the conservative movement here this year. You've got Stephen Harper, Pierre Polyev is speaking, Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. Uh, do you think the fact that there has been this energy and this vibrance in the conservative movement is what Stephen Harper was talking about, about that conservative renaissance, that right now it's there's not really that malaise that you sometimes have when you're in opposition? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, Look, I'm very happy with the elected officials who are here. I think they represent exactly where we believe conservative politics should be going. We think about people like Pierre Polyev, Danielle Smith, Stephen Harper. There is a conservative tradition here that we want to be well represented. The reality is not everyone who calls themselves a conservative believes in those same things. We believe that is the right direction, and we want to show that to the rest of the country. I know you and I have talked in the past about how this is not a conservative party event. It's a conservative movement event. But, but I'm curious for your thoughts on the PPC situation. I don't see people here that are identifying themselves as PPC supporters. We know they're a part of the right of center movement in Canada. So uh, what's the place that that has, if anything? Look, a lot of the people um, who we embrace through our events, people who speak at our events, might identify as PPC. We don't ask people who they vote for, what party they belong to. I think one thing that we believe is important, though, is trying to solve problems and not just sort of the theater of politics. And that's what I would say to anyone who feels underrepresented is show us our, your solutions. We'd like to work with you. We're open as long as you're actually trying to solve problems. Yeah. And it was interesting hearing Preston Manning and Stephen Harper talk about this uh, of, you know, a, a split off party that uh, said, you know, the status quo is not working for us. But they took a very constructive approach that ended up becoming what we now know as the Conservative Party of Canada and what was a government for about a decade. Yeah. And to me, that is the, the bar, right? That is the standard, which is, are you making a difference? Are you putting ideas forward that are going to make our country better? I'm open to hearing that from anybody. I mean, if a liberal or an NDP wanted to come on our stage and had a good idea, I'd be open to that too. But the reality is- that, You'd be waiting for a while. Yeah. yeah. But that is our standard, right? And yeah. you know, we were, we were lucky to have an MNA from Quebec, Yuri Chasson, speak this morning. We are open to a lot of different political parties. Eric Duhame from the Conservative Party of Quebec will be speaking tomorrow. Um, so we, we do work with a lot of different parties, but that is the bar. Are you solving problems? Do you have ideas that are going to help our country? That's what we're looking for. Jamil Giovanni, thanks very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. That was Jamil Giovanni, the president of the Canada Strong and Free Network, sitting down in the conference there. It's always fun. They do a regional one in Red Deer, which is good for the Western roots that I... I have a Western sensibility, albeit, albeit uh, I'm not from the West. This surprises people because they see me in Calgary and uh, Edmonton and Red Deer so often. But uh, then they do the main event in Ottawa. And I was glad that uh, True North was able to play such a role there. We had a large crew and many of you uh, did come out to say hello. And I thank you very much much for that. I want to turn to Roxham Road because this was one of the big policy takeaways from Justin Trudeau's meetings with Joe Biden, the American president who was in Ottawa at the same time as I was. And it was quite amusing. I was actually sitting down with a couple of friends for a uh, for a quick bite to eat after one, I think it was after I had spoken or something like that. And we were at like the window seat of the restaurant at the conference hotel. And there were like, it just, I didn't even really notice like all these sirens outside. And I, I look and it's like the 45 minute long presidential motorcade uh, that was going by the shore club at the Westin. And it was like, but it kept going and going and going at a certain point. It's like there were pickup trucks and cargo vans. And I'm like, 
like, you, what do you, did you guys just join it? Is this like a funeral procession where everyone's like, oh, I want to have fun. And then they start going on too. And, but it just kept going and going. And I uh, made sure to make <laughs> on the next day when I had to catch a flight to get out of Ottawa to like leave before Biden did, because I didn't want to be uh, stuck behind that. But nevertheless, uh, traffic delays aside, uh, Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau have agreed to amend the safe third country agreement and effectively close Roxham Road. Now, uh, CBC had this story, I think it was just yesterday, uh, migrants still attempting to cross at Roxham Road with news of Canada-U.S. deal slow to spread. So uh, people are still showing up. They're still spending. In one case, they quote a, a family originally from Venezuela who said they spent thousands of dollars to uh, get up to the uh, bus station and then take a taxi to the border. And then they get to the border and realize they're being turned away here. So uh, it's amazing how Justin Trudeau's infamous Welcome to Canada tweet has not been met with a, hey, the border is closed tweet, do not come here. But uh, Roxham Road, the thing that Justin Trudeau once said was so difficult to deal with. Take a look. For years, we have been focused on um, closing Roxham Road. The challenge is not to say, oh, we should close it. The challenge is how to close it. It would be unfortunate to put up barricades and close Roxham Road only for border crossings to open up elsewhere along the 6,000 or so kilometers of border that we have with the United States. The, the way to close Roxham Road is to renegotiate the safe third country agreement with the United States, which is something that we've been working on uh, for many, many, many months now. We're making real progress. It was so difficult to deal with the border. It was taking many months to do. And now, of course, we finally have supposedly had an agreement. Now, interestingly enough, one point I would add here is that it wasn't as difficult when COVID came along and the border was closed for virtually everyone. I mean, not everyone, everyone. Canadians could still come back to the country, but the Canada-US border uh, was closed for the vast majority of people. It wasn't actually as hard to deal with then, but uh, now it has gone back to being difficult, but they finally reached a, a solution here. Uh, we'll see how long it takes for news to trickle out to those who are trying to come into the country illegally to claim asylum. And, and that process itself is allowed. But uh, the Roxham Road loophole is, it seems, no more. I want to welcome to the show here Kevin Weiner, who is a lawyer and also former adjudicator with the Immigration and Refugee Board. Uh, Kevin, it's good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Hi, Andrew. It's good to be on. So let's start first off here. Was this as difficult as the government made it sound like to do? Um, the thing is, you can't just send people to another country without that country's permission. Um, so the issue had you have people coming over the border. They'd be making refugee claims. They weren't under the current state of their country agreement. And you know, we can't just pick them up and send them to America because America has the right to control their own border, just like we have the right to control our border. So it gave us this choice where either you hear their claim or you send them to their home country without hearing their claim. And the problem with that is that would violate our obligations under international law. And you have, you know, you have political dissidents from Venezuela, you have um, you know, Christians from Iran or Sudan, you know, and, and these aren't people we want to be sending to where they could be uh, imprisoned or tortured or executed um, without a hearing. Um, and so the issue is balancing the fact that you do have people with genuine claims, but you also don't want to encourage asylum shopping where people just pick the country where they think they'll get the the most likely chance of success or the best life if they do succeed. 
Well, and that was basically the premise behind the safe third country agreement in the first place, was it not? That by the time you've landed in the United States or Canada, you've already uh, basically gotten to a safe haven, so you don't really have a claim to go to the other one. Yeah, I mean, we have, the European Union has the same thing throughout the entire EU, um, where uh, it's the country where you first enter, where your claim is supposed to be heard, and then they do have ways of, of sharing the burden. But the idea is, you know, you might be traveling through countries where you're not safe, but once you get to a safe country, you don't just get to pick and choose where you live. Asylum is a, a last ditch uh, way of ensuring that people aren't deported to somewhere where they'll face torture or death or persecution. It's not an immigration stream. So was there not an ability, I know Justin Trudeau in that clip I played a few moments ago was saying you can't just put up a fence because then people will go elsewhere. And I, I think generally speaking, there's some truth to that. But Roxham Road became almost a parody of sorts because it, it literally became a, a pseudo official border crossing because you had this pipeline of transportation that was getting there. So uh, at, at a certain point, yes, I agree that, you know, if, theoretically someone could walk across at any point in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, function speaking, but, but Roxham Road was a very unique challenge. Could they not have prevented people from walking across that border in the first place? I mean, you, you could have put up a fence, um, but they would have gone around it. I, I mean, I do think one thing they could have done, which they didn't do, was most of the time when you have people crossing illegally into your country, you know, there's like a people smuggling pipeline, it's generally criminals, things like that. And what was unique about Roxham Road is these are people who would be taking a bus to Plattsburgh, New York, and they would just get a taxi and the taxi would drive them right to the border, knowing full well these people are going to be illegally crossing. And technically, that, that's people smuggling under Canadian law. We could have sought to have these taxi drivers extradited and I believe it would have been a three year minimum uh, prison sentence. Um, now, you know, at the very least, we could have started putting some pressure on these companies, you, you know, saying you can't be facilitating this flow of uh, illegal immigration. We, I, I mean, for, for goodness sakes, we had the mayor of New York at one point talking about how New York City was sending people up to Canada. Um, so certainly I, I do think we could have taken a bit more seriously about trying to dry up that what was essentially a people smuggling pipeline. Well, yeah, yeah, and I, I think you raised an important point there. And my suspicion would be that the incentive for the United States to find a resolution to this would have been quite small because this is in a, a very real way, I think, probably helping a United States problem because uh, these people were in the U.S. system. They're voluntarily deporting themselves to Canada. Yeah, it's, it's very one-sided. I mean, the U.S. has the exact same issue on their southern border where they're trying to get Mexico to sign a safer country agreement and Mexico doesn't want to. And so they've been able to negotiate at certain points the Remain in Mexico policy, things like that. Um, but on, on our border, you do have some people will, will fly to Canada and then illegally cross into the States, but generally not to make a refugee claim, just to, to live there illegally. So there wasn't really any direct incentive uh, for the Americans to expand the safer country agreement. Uh, and that's probably why you saw as part of this agreement that Canada has agreed uh, to set up a pipeline, um, to set up a legal pipeline for more people from Central and South America to come to Canada. Uh, it's part of the Biden administration's hopes but by setting up more legal pathways for people to uh, legally move to Canada or the United States, it will reduce the incentive to uh, cross illegally. Now, under this, are they making it easier for people to be admitted or has that part remained, un remained essentially unchanged? Yeah, we have no idea what this uh, 15,000 is going to look like, whether it will be uh, what's called a refugee resettlement stream is one option where potentially people who've been granted asylum in Mexico or maybe the United States or whatever, you know, will be resettled 
uh, to Canada the same way we resettle the number of Syrian refugees, or it could be an economic stream. Uh, so we don't know exactly what that's going to look like at this point. Where would you look? I, I mean, I know your your expertise is obviously in in the legal aspect of this and not the political aspect of this. I, I I think it is pretty clear that that tweet of Justin Trudeau's from years ago, "Welcome to Canada," did have an effect. It sent a, at uh, certainly a, a signal throughout a lot of communities in the United States that hey, Canada was the place to go. How do they deal with the problem they're having on this end now, where they've closed this border, but people have still started making their way there and they've still started heading there? I don't I don't imagine this is just going to result itself in a few days time yeah i mean to a certain extent it's not that big of a problem for them because people are still crossing right at rocks and they're still being immediately apprehended and they can get turned over to customs and border protection right away so it's not putting the same burden on our system as, as hearing the claims uh what will get more complicated is i think as more people start to learn about this yes you'll see the numbers go down but for those who are really determined to come to canada uh, they're still a loophole, it's a harder loophole, which basically says if you manage to make it into Canada and then you wait 15 days before turning yourselves in or making a claim, the agreement won't apply. So you'll probably see fewer people just openly crossing and then getting caught, but you, you will start to see some actual straight up people smuggling of, of probably people in vans crossing the border or um, you know just going through the woods or things like that in the hopes that they just come to Canada, uh, sit underground for a few weeks, and then they can make their claim. What would your what would you anticipate really happening here in in the long term with some of these claimants? And and I don't know if we've already seen some data on this about how successful Roxham Road claimants have been when their claims are processed. Um, I mean, actually, generally pretty successful in in getting uh, asylum. You do have whether it's people who come by air or by land. You, you have a chunk of claimants. Um, who do put forward either fraudulent claims or they may be genuine claims, but they're somewhere else in their country they can live or they can receive state protection. But you also just have a lot of people who genuinely are refugees, are coming from countries where they do face persecution, um, and they just want to have their claim heard in Canada rather than the United States. And all this agreement does is say, you know, your claim will probably still be successful, you just have to have it heard in America rather than in Canada, so there's appropriate burden sharing. But, um, you know, Frankly, uh, from my understanding, is the grant rate at the Refugee Protection Division has actually uh, been going up the last several years. And if anything, that's probably why the system uh, hasn't completely collapsed, because while there's been many more claims being adjudicated, you don't have as many rejections that are then going through the appeal stream, um, the federal court, and then having to be removed. Uh, but uh, it's been a, I know it's been a big burden on the Immigration Refugee Board where they've hired hundreds of new adjudicators to deal with all these claims the last several years. Yeah, and if you actually go to Roxham Road, it, it looks in, in many regards like an official crossing now. They've set up these uh, semi-permanent per, to permanent encampments and stations and detachments. I mean, there, and it's like, again, it's probably got more of a, of a government presence than some of the official border crossings in uh, rural Quebec uh, are uh, having there. So uh, appreciate your insight, Kevin Wiener. Thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. Thank you. That was the uh, the legal analysis on this. Kevin is a, a very bright guy. I've known him for, for many years and glad he weighed in on this. I want to talk about another dimension of this, which I, I feel is the part of the story that's not as often told, and that is the uh, the local dimension, because these are our local communities that oftentimes have had to deal with this influx, which isn't just at Roxham Road, but I think all around uh, Ontario and Quebec near the, the New York-Vermont border. Uh, I want to welcome onto the show the mayor of Niagara Falls, uh, Jim Diodato. Daddy, uh, your worship, good to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on today. 
Uh, thanks for having me, Andrew. So this is not often, because it's immigration, been seen as a municipal issue, but in your city, it really has been one. Yeah, it was something uh, just kind of happened to us. You know, uh, it started out pretty, um, pretty mild. Last summer, they brought 87 people to Niagara Falls, and they said they'd be asylum seekers staying in, uh, in town. They'd be part of the uh, federal government's program just to kind of keep it low key. And uh, we did, and it seemed pretty nefarious. And uh, next thing we went from 87 to 387 to 600 to 1200, you know, we're up over 2000 rooms now and upwards of more than 5000 asylum seekers here in Niagara Falls. So for a community of 95,000, when more than 5% are asylum seekers, that's a big number. That's an overnight uh, impact. And it's been difficult because uh, we're trying to absorb the, the social services, Ontario Works, and all the other things that go with it. And uh, I've been on uh, regular conversations with IRCC and uh, as well as the province today, just trying to sort out our role in, in this matter. And again, let me start by saying, Andrew, I know we're a nation of immigrants. We get that. And I know generally these are good people coming from bad situations. We're grateful to do our part, but we feel that we're doing more than our fair share and we need a little bit of help. Well, and no, and I think that's that's a point well taken, Mayor, because when you talk about the broader landscape, you could find the immigration numbers and divide it into a country of 38 million, and it doesn't sound that bad. But when you look at the fact that so much of that is concentrated along border communities, it, it does change the dynamic. And, and Niagara Falls in particular, is a, it's a lovely place. It's a tourist city. You've uh, probably got better use for a lot of the hotel rooms that you have there. And I, it just, it occurs to me as you were talking about that, have you actually had issues where hotel occupancy rates have been uh, artificially inflated and elevated and you don't actually have room to accommodate uh, the tourist demand? Well, you know, that's a great question. And, and yes. So of course, it's the economic model of supply and demand. And we've got big inventory and in the shoulder season, a lot of it's vacant during the week. So it seemed like a natural place. And of course, a lot of the hoteliers were happy to grab the extra money. It was easy mm -hmm. money, but we're already running into challenges. We've got major tour groups, major events that bring in significant amounts of people that are getting very, very frustrated. They've reached out to our office. Some said they're going to leave the city. Uh, I can tell you too, Andrew, we've had some situations and, and this is some of the unintended negative outcomes of a good idea. We've had some of our local Niagara homeless who public health have put up in our local motels who have been evicted to make room for asylum seekers. So, you know, you try to solve a problem and it's not by creating another problem or kicking the can down the road. So I asked three things of the federal government. Number one, I asked that we have a seat at the table. So we need to be part of the discussion if we're going to help with the solution. And we are the boots on the ground. We're telling them things, some things they did not know they weren't aware of because we're the front line. So I said, give us a seat at the table. We're here to help. Second thing, we need money. Federal, federal government's going to have to pay some of the bills here. Our, our, our peripheral expenses, I mean, our food bank, our soup kitchen is up 85%. Uh, you know, our local community groups, the churches, mosques, temples, and whatnot are giving coats, boots, hats, gloves, and, and things like that. So secondly, second request is for money. And third thing is we'd like to be made privy to the plan or plans. And I know they're evolving, emerging, and they're changing, and we get that. But tell us what the plan is. Hope can't be the strategy. We need a physical plan because my bigger concern, Andrew, is, you know, I've got this one train coming down the track of thousands of silent seekers, and I've got this other train coming down the other track. We've got 14 million tourists coming back. So, so we don't want to have a problem. We want everyone to land softly. And in Niagara Falls, we're the number one leisure destination in Canada. 40,000 people count on tourism to feed their families, 
to pay the rent, pay the mortgage, and they're counting on a recovery season. We were devastated by COVID. Last year, domestic tourism re returned to pre-pandemic numbers, but international were below half. So now that the Arrive Can app is gone from the borders and it's a favorable exchange rate from our, for our American friends, this is the year of international recovery we're counting on. And if we don't have the inventory, we're gonna have some challenges. And I mean, when we talk about the change that came out last week to the Safe Third Country Agreement, I think obviously for the illegal uh, border crossing aspect of it, there's a bit of a resolution there. But part of the government's response to that is increasing or widening the pipeline for asylum claimants. So the problem that you're describing in Niagara Falls is pretty much unchanged and perhaps made even worse by this change, is it not? Well, it could be. And that's that's the thing. The devil's going to be in the details. And I know that. Uh, I'm just glad they're addressing it, not ignoring it. Roxham mm -hmm. Road's uh, a legal loophole. And it's not even fair to the other asylum seekers who are going through the proper channels because they're jumping the queue ahead of people doing it the right way. And, you know, it's only a matter of time. And if you look at the path of least resistance and water, will take that. Wherever the low point is, wherever the opening is, that's where the water goes. And eventually it'll force that opening bigger until there's no water going anywhere but that place. And that's where we were headed. And, um, and again, I don't know that there's any perfect solution. It's just that we're trying to get to a better place. And, and yeah, go ahead, sir. Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious about uh, whether there has been a, a seat at the table for any of your counterparts in other municipalities, because as the old line goes, there's safety in numbers. And I know that other communities are, are dealing with this. You probably get unfairly targeted because, as you mentioned, you have the hotel inventory. So you're uh, more of a natural pick there. But uh, ha have other mayors and other cities really seen the same thing here? Well, definitely not to this degree. I, I speak regularly with Drew Dilkins, the mayor of Windsor, and they asked for a cap uh, to be put on their hotel rooms, and then they got bumped. And Niagara Falls, we're at uh, almost 2,000. They added another 500 rooms this week. So uh, unfortunately, you know, some of the hotel you see it as a great opportunity, but we're only two months away. So just to we, just to interject there, Mayor Diodai. So when you say they added 500, is this something that the federal government can do unilaterally just by going to the hotel and saying, "Hey, we want the rooms"? Are you theoretically cut out of that discussion entirely if the government doesn't want to involve you? We are absolutely not part of that discussion. They're going wow. direct. So they're using a third party group who's putting out requests for proposal. And then all the hoteliers that are interested can put in a bid. And of course, rates are going higher because we're getting closer to the tourism season. Mm -hmm. And, you know, right now it's probably around 140 bucks, 150 bucks a night for a hotel room plus $75 a day for food, three meals a day and snacks for kids in school. Then they get another 350 a month for incidentals. And, you know, there's some other fees that they get. So they're, they're being well taken care of. And of course, if I'm a hotel year and it's the shoulder season and I can get seven day a week occupancy and I don't have to clean the room and I don't need to be preparing meals because they're using a lot of them are using third party cafeteria type meal uh, processes. I mean, I understand the allure of it, but it's not sustainable and we don't have a plan. We don't know how long it's going to go, when it's going to end, how big it's going to get. We don't have any of these. Nobody really seems to have these answers. Well, I hopefully you'll get them and we'll have to have you back on to see if you have any luck on that. I mean, this is not a new problem. And every time it comes up, it's like everyone acts. It's the first time they've ever had to consider it. So I'm glad that you are on the ground and willing to share that. Uh, Niagara Falls Mayor Jim Diodati. Thank you so much, sir. Thanks for having me.
All right. Well, that does it for us for today. We'll have to get uh, his worship back on and other mayors in, in other communities. Like I said, I mean, we all focus on Roxham Road and rightfully so, but there is the question of what happens when these people come in. And I'll, I'll give you a bit of a teaser. I don't like being a tease, but I'm only doing it this way because I'm working on the story and I haven't done it yet. So I don't want to give it away. But uh, there is a major conference that was just forced to cancel and relocate effectively because they were kicked out of their hotel because of one of these government contracts because of migrant accommodation. And it wasn't in Niagara Falls. Uh, hopefully we'll have that story up at True North tomorrow, but but stay tuned. I mean, there are very real consequences when these things are done as unilaterally as they are. So uh, with that, we'll bid you adieu, but we're back tomorrow with more of Canada's most reverent talk show here on True North. The Andrew Lawton Show awaits. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.